Hello, and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast, where David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110. We've watched Los Angeles grow from a sleepy tech backwater to a bustling mecca of startup opportunity. Through conversations with fellow investors and a few other special guests, we'll deliver an insider's view of the LA tech scene. Today, we're joined by Mark Mullen, co-founder and managing director of Bonfire Ventures. I met Mark back in 2013 when 10110 was just getting started. He's been a mentor, friend, and colleague ever since. Mark's fund, Double M Capital, was one of only a handful of early-stage firms investing in L.A. back then. A lot has happened since, and we're excited to hear him tell his story. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us on L.A. Venture. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I love you guys, so I'm very happy to get the chance to talk to you. Uh, you're very kind. Uh, so I told you I was going to ask you to tell us a little about, about your background. I said not too much, and you said it's very relevant and interesting, so please, let me turn it over to you. I'm sure it's relevant, but I'm not sure it's interesting, but I grew up in Colorado, and I'm an only child, and so I had a lot of uh, early responsibility in my life, being alone, and both my parents were entrepreneurs. My mother um, started a interior design firm, and that was uh, really neat to see her do that, and my father was an entrepreneur for basically his whole life. He was in the ski industry, and then he was in the restaurant business. And so I've always been impacted by their lives and what they did, and I always wanted to be in business, let's say. I always wish I played a musical instrument, but didn't. In any case, I had a chance to, when I came out of college, uh, I went to work in investment banking. Did that for four years, I went to grad school, and came back out and got a chance to work for an entrepreneur named Bill Daniels. Bill is known as the father of cable TV. Uh, he's dead now, he died um, 10 years ago. but And so they had investments all over the country. They were an M&A, and they raised private equity for a number of companies in the business. And they had never done anything internationally. And I spoke French, and um, I was young, and I was willing to get on a plane and go in anywhere, and he hired me to be that person. And if I fast forward 20 years now, I lived in France, I lived in England, uh, I lived in New York City. I spent time and worked on deals in 30 different countries, uh, raised multi-multi-billions of dollars, and worked on multi-billions of dollars of um, M&A transactions. And the people I was working for were all entrepreneurs. These were not old companies that had been around forever and we were selling them or raising money. These were, these were individuals, men, women, different countries, different races, uh, starting cable television companies, uh, wireless telephone companies, outdoor advertising, billboards, ISPs, hosting companies, as that business started to grow. So I had an incredible exposure to many different types of entrepreneurs. And that's what kind of paved the way, or that's why I feel comfortable having the opportunity to meet with so many different founders in the seed stage. As you know, in the seed stage, there's not a lot of information. I'm a financial expert. I'm on the I'm the chairman of the audit committee of Altice, which is the fourth largest telecom operator in the United States. We have 10 billion of revenue. I'm the head of the audit committee. If you want to talk about finance, we can do that all day long. Oh, I didn't know that. Wait, that's a big public company. Yes. Oh. Yes. And um, you know, that's a serious uh, responsibility. <laughs> but the point is, in our stage of investing in seed companies, we're really exposed to the founding team and the founders, and we're trying to make a bet, an educated bet. But we're trying to make a um, decision based on what we think that founder is capable of. Everybody has an idea. Everybody's writing code. Everybody's excited. You know, of course I want people to have grit, but it's so hard to tell. Like, and, that, and that's a common thing that most VCs say. Uh, I do spend a lot of time. I mean, when founders come into my office or if I go see them, of course, we don't, we don't open the deck. 
we do not open the laptop. I don't let them do that, to be honest, um, just because if you can't tell me what your company does in two minutes by looking me in, in the eye, it's going to be hard for you to really raise the money. And so I love to spend time understanding who they are. And I ask questions like, what did your mom do? Do you have a sister? Was she older? Was she more aggressive than you? Was your brother a better athlete? You know, I start to figure out. And they're, in fairness, they kind of look at me sometimes like, what? You know, what are you asking? But I really want to understand who they are because as you know in this space, we spend, I'm going to spend the next 10 years with this person and hopefully being helpful to that person, not just as an investor, but in their life. I had been investing personally in companies since the late 90s. And I'd also invested in and have invested in numerous venture capital and private equity firms, probably about 20 now. And I'm an investor in several funds here in LA. And um, so I'm very exposed to the investment world, the investment process, um, funds, uh, direct investments. And I wanted to expand that personal investing side into a more professional investing side. And so that's why I started the fund in August 2012, literally seven years ago. Well, I remember back then it was it was a much smaller scene. As you said, there, there wasn't really much money in town. And it was so small that we had lunch, pretty much all of us, every month or so. Um, things have changed a bit since then. What do you what do you think of LA today versus then? Well, I miss those lunches. There were David's referring to I think six or seven of us that all had small funds, and we used to have lunch, and we'd literally go through our deal flow. I mean, imagine doing that today. TX, like who else? Who was in the? Who's the original? Matt crew? Mazio, TX, you, me, um, Brico. Who else? I mean, it You're was sort a, of it was a, it was great, and we tried it for about a year and a half, and it and it also just became hard scheduling, and then it started to say, well, gosh, we're all raising more money, and we're all getting a little more competitive. Probably not a long-standing lunch that we could keep. So, but what's interesting about what you said, David, is that very quickly both of us became a known brand in LA and some of our other people like Crosscut and others because there was in fairness very little competition. Since then as you know um, the market's grown dramatically. We've all been chest thumpers for the LA ecosystem. It has grown dramatically around us. You know we, we are having tangible evidence that uh, the engineering schools that drive this economy are staying. The, 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 the graduates are staying here because there's so much more opportunity. There's so many more companies getting started. Those companies are selling. They're starting more companies. We know how this works. If you go back to 2010-11 and you're a, a, a star engineer coming out of any one of the, the top five schools here, your optionality is very limited. So you went to San Francisco. And we've had some incredible entrepreneurs who've left here to start companies in San Francisco. Uber, mm-hmm. uh, Airbnb, they went to UCLA. Like, There's a lot of great founders here who, uh, if, if you look back, m- maybe went to San Francisco or New York or some other market because there weren't, wasn't the opportunity here. Now there's the opportunity. Do you feel like there's enough capital here now? I think there's a, enough capital for the seed market for sure. We all still need to go primarily to San Francisco to get the A's, B's, and C's. There are bigger A firms here. All friends of ours, the Graycrofts, up fronts of the world, we know that. Um, but they can't do every deal here. And so there's uh, more capital than ever, more companies than ever, more people than ever. I think that all builds on itself. Let's hit the basics of your investing now, which I think you're writing million to million and a half dollar checks. Yes, roughly, yeah. Seven or eight deals a year? Yes. High conviction? High conviction, low volume. Got it. Uh, what else do we need to know about the basics? Um, you're usually then someone sort of second 
seed. Yeah, what we call ourselves is first institutional check, which may not be fair because if you're calling a pre-seed fund, like, for example, Dustin, who's done a fantastic job. I mean, he does a lot of early stage pre-seed checks. He's institutional. He has investors, but it's traditionally more of an institutional round. We do about 65% of all of our deals are in Southern California on purpose. Uh, 100% of our deals are B2B. We've always focused on B2B, and we have led uh, 80% of our deals. So as much as we love the angel community and the precede people, you know, we have to do the work to get to that lead check, and that's what we're striving to do. And a lot of your deals then, will you'll expect them to have some traction. They should have some revenues. Yes, and so... You know, I can give you numbers, but we, we do, it's a good point. We do look for traction. Of course, you do adjust that traction based on the founder experience. We're investors in OpenPath. We're led by Alex Kazarani. I was Alex's banker in the 90s. They've invested in four companies. I invested with him for a long time. He's an investor in Bonfire. They didn't need a lot of money. They had a lot of money themselves to invest in their own company. Um, there was no seed round there, and they had no revenues. And kind of a plan. I mean, they were making progress on their plan. but um, So there's an example where we will do a no-revenue situation, yeah. but the founder has to have that unique experience. But like a more typical person, how, how long do you meet them and do your diligence? Like what does that kind of look like more traditionally? Well, two pieces there. One is I have invested in companies in the first meeting, um, and I can – give you names. Jeff Green from the Trade Desk, Walter Driver from Scopely, um, um, Catherine from Click Media. And um, that's where it kind of goes back to my gut instinct on people and the conversation that we're having. And I've got to be part of this um, part of this opportunity. Um, so that's one side of it. The other side now, it's getting harder. You can't do that. You can't walk in and go, I'll give you a million and a half dollars. And yeah, I, just, so I just met you. Right. So someone walks in and you give them... You're like, I'm in. I want to be part of this. Yes. And, and can you do that now with the, I mean, if you ask Walter, who, who just told me this two weeks ago, he goes, I remember our meeting, and it was, I think it was with Aton. He's like, you walked in. You talked to us for about 30 minutes. You said, I'm in. And, I'm, awesome. and I'm, Walter's like, I don't know who this guy is, but if that's the way he's acting, like I want him to be an investor. That's what he told me. So that worked out. Okay. Now, um, now we have to spend more time. And it's just the function of the, the size check we're writing. Still have to have those instincts and drive off of that. So I'm not going to go forward on a, on a deal or spend much time if I don't have the instincts on the founder to try and do that. Um, now we need to spend more time. We have a great team. So that's part of the, you know, part of this conversation. You know, Bonfire is just not me. Bonfire uh, came out of the, the, the combination of Jim Andelman, who's a fantastic investor and a fantastic person. Um, who's always focused on B2B in Southern California. We've been co-investing since 2012. It was a very organic relationship for us to become partners. And so that's allowed me to scale my own skill set and allowed him to scale his own skill set. We've since added two more people, um, Brett Queener and Tyler Churchill. You know, so we feel like we have a, a very good team that has a lot of different skills, which allows us to do the due diligence uh, that we need to do faster. And so do you, uh, you meet someone, do you go to Jim or Brett or Tyler for certain things where you're just like, I'm not sure, I need you to bang on this? Or, or when do they... Yeah, I mean, we are falling into place in terms of what we know the other one's good at uh, or better at, let's yeah. call it. You don't have to, I don't have to know everything about every company. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't know that when I was alone, so... So what, what, is, what, what are the things that you're better at? What are the things that you go to Jim for or yeah. Brett? Let me answer a different way, which is, you know, we've now added, and you guys, you two 
particularly uh, know this very well as successful operators. I'm not an operator. Uh, I've been around operators. I've been involved with these companies, but I, I would not, you know, I can't claim that I started a company and I know what it's like. And so um, Brett Queener, who was an early employee at Siebel Systems and then an early employee in the top 50 employees at Salesforce and worked there for 12 years. He was head of product, head of sales, you know, head of everything. They wear a lot of hats back in the day. And, um, and so when we're going through some, maybe some, and he's a SaaS expert, right? So when we are starting to figure out go-to-market strategy, which I think is very important in the, in the seed stage, how you're actually going to accomplish this stuff, he's got a very good sense and a very good understanding of how that, that roadmap should work. So that's a skill that we've added. Uh, Jim is a, um, I call, a, like, the guy's recall is annoying. Like, we talk about something four years ago. He goes, remember we were talking to that company? It's called, and he knows the name of the company and the CEO and what they did. I'm like, no idea. No clue. I've never heard of that company before. He's like, look at your notes. I'm like, okay. So um, my point is, like, um, his ability to take a look at a company and understand immediately who the competitors already are or what competitors or what other companies may be doing something similar, or um, uh, he has that skill set. He's also had incredible, you know, he's been investing for 20 years. So he has a lot of unique ability to, a lot of unique abilities to uh, understand structuring of things. Um, you know, we've gotten in some deals uh, that we didn't think we could get into, or we didn't like the price, and we ended up negotiating in a different way to get the price that made sense for us. So we have a great kind of, uh, great team that, you know, we're all getting to know each other's uh, strengths and weaknesses, and that just makes us better as a platform. How, how do you make decisions ultimately? Like, so you you go and you have that feeling that you get like this is a person I want to be in business with. Mm -hmm. Do you take it back to the partnership? Do you have people meet with them separately? Yeah. So imagine a deal comes to me from you or any other source, and um, the first pass is going to, we all trust each other. So there's a lot of deals none of us see from the other because the other one passed on it. It's just, it, it doesn't fit. It's consumer. It's not in Southern California. It's not the right founder. It's a business we don't care about. It's something, blah, blah, blah. We can get through those pretty quickly. And then there's a company that comes in and, and I say, well, this is pretty interesting. Um, we put it into our system and I'm responsible because it came to me for that first pass. First pass meeting, first conversation. And sometimes we will grab each other, depending on the timing of it. Like, this is very interesting. This is kind of moving. We need to, let's get two of us on this right away. Um, the other times it's, it's up to that person to have that first conversation or first meeting and then come back and say, um, this is something we need to take a look at and here's why. And so what we're trying to get better at and being more forceful on is the why part. So instead of sending an email to each other and saying, interesting company, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, because, no, sounds, because sounds that, not familiar. Yes, yeah. because what that does is opens, up, opens it up for the next pass. So example, Jim gets a company, likes it, sends it to me. I'm like, don't like this company. I know this person. I know the founder. Didn't like the business. Oh, okay, so that's another pass opportunity before we really get too deep. But it is, it is, it is up to me or that person that's driving the deal to kind of explain to the others why we think it's a positive. Then it's up to the others to start explaining why they don't think so or why they agree. And then that starts to drive a process of, okay, let's get them in, let's go see them. Uh, Brett, you need to do a call. Uh, Jim, go meet with them. And then we start to coalesce our thinking and it, and it just bubbles up, to be honest. And we get to a point where we're saying, look, if we can get this type of price range 
and we can put this type of money in, um, we should evaluate, you know, we kind of, uh, then that person who was in charge goes back to the founder and says, here's what we'd like to do. Are you, are you interested? Because <laughs> we have to sell ourselves now more than ever, right? Because there's more competition. And then we start the process. I mean, I could, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a deal now where Brett and Tyler were on the lead. They wrote a nice email to the founder, copied us, said, here's what we like about the company. Here's what we want to learn more about. This is our position. Do you want to go? And she wrote back, said, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to dig in deeper. And so we're all digging in. Then we share customer um, responsibility. So back to the point of having traction, um, we want to make sure they have traction that is relevant because a lot of times young companies have maybe their friend is the CTO at some company and they're their first customer. Or maybe they're selling a product that wasn't really the right, it was a kind of a custom product, which is really not the product they're going to sell or be able to sell on a scale basis. And so we try to figure out if the customers are real customers and if the, the solution they're buying is the one that the company's actually going to be able to sell. And so in the situation of this company, again, they have, you know, we asked for six references and we're going to each call one or two of them. And then we write notes and then we share those notes into a Google Doc and it's up to the other people to do the work and make sure they're reading and figuring out. And we look for, of course, like you, we look for um, any red flags in the conversation with, with, with customers. So that's how we make sure that all of us know what's happening with the company as opposed to just one person or two people driving it and saying, hey, we really like this company. We just gave them a term sheet. That never happens. Right. And I think you said something like uh, 50K MRR might be a range, but it completely depends if it's... Because we all have LPs and because we're getting ready to raise our next fund, I have all the numbers at my fingertips, of course. The average MRR across the entire portfolio is about 55000 But in fairness, that's skewed by a couple bigger companies and the companies that have no revenue. And so I'm not sure how relevant that 55000 number is. It's more relevant you know, how many customers and if those customers are real. Now, what we try to track, we track revenue growth on purpose. Again, because we, you know, the market is is pretty strong right now. And a lot of companies are raising money, which is fantastic. I'm not quite sure some of the money being raised is actually tied to the performance of the company or just a market situation. And so even when our companies get up rounds, we want to just make sure and check that this is because it's actually a growing company, <laughs> you know? Um, and so we do track revenue that way. Yeah, it was interesting. Will Sue was saying that their follow-on decisions are made ex uh, exclusively quantitatively. Yes. And set the metrics. Yes. We have what we call pre- and post-investment criteria. We have roadmaps for the companies. Um, we have built... We're building a lot of tools for our founders. I mean, we really want to be, you know, the B2B software specialist. And um, we're building tools such as, you know, we have a, we have a, sale, we have a SaaS sales model that's an open Google Doc that we share with everybody. We have uh, board decks. It's open Google, Google Doc that we share with everybody. Um, but we're building more processes around um, pre and post, uh, pre and post um, uh, metrics. So... Uh, and as we are investing about 60% of our capital in follow-ons, we have that same, that same kind of attempt to have criteria as to if we should do it. Before we started recording today, you, you were telling us a story about a, a company that um, 
was cold inbound and, and you actually engage with them. Uh, is that a good way to reach you? Do people, do you make a lot of investments to people who just reach out cold or do you get most of your referrals from people like us? How does that work? Well, the reality is we get most referrals from people we know. Um, and that's unfortunate thing about the business. Uh, I wrestle with the number of founders that can't get to any of us because they're not in the system. So I think that's a flaw in the venture capital system. And so I don't like to say, I won't talk to you unless you have a warm referral, which I know other VCs say. It's just is so gross. Um, but the reality is we really are busy people. So the way that people get to us is primarily from some sort of relationship we have, other VCs. Um, I've been around for a long time, so I have a, lot, I have a network of people all over the world, which is helpful. Uh, and so there's a, we have more than 20 investors in the fund who were founders themselves. And as you know, you get a lot of deal flow that way because you're, you're a confidant, you're a mentor to many new companies. And so that flow is never stopping. And now that we have four people, multiply that by four, you know, there's probably a six X multiplication on the number of deals we're getting. That's more likely how we get our deal flow. But I would say that the, you know, I am open-minded, um, but I get frustrated when the person I'm talking to doesn't recognize that we're all busy and we're very, you know, this is, this is serious business. Can you name an example of, of a, a company that came in cold where it worked out? Uh, yes. So a company called Active Measure, which has changed its name to Disco here in L.A. They're out in Glendale. Uh, three founders, Armenian descent. They came in cold, and there was a revenue line in their email that caught my attention. Um, and I talks. was like, how do you, to myself, like, is that real? It was, I, I can't remember the numbers. Million in revenue or something. And the way that the person who wrote the email was very professional. Like, this is a professional person. Like, they had bad careers prior. They're in their late 30s. Um, they're business people. They understand certain things, and they understand that, that my, their time and my time is, is limited. And this was a good example of how Jim and I worked together. This was the first real deal that he and I worked on together. And I had been following them and thinking about it and meeting them, and they were t tremendously exciting, unique, um, good people that I were really happy we're investors in, but it just was an outside investment. It was, you know, they don't know anything about the LA community. They're not involved in the VC community. They could care less. You know, we all are finding those CEOs that just like, oh, okay, well, let's go down and hang out in Silicon Beach. They don't do that. Uh, why? Because they're building a business. And so we got to know them and I was wrestling with how to move on the next step. And that was right when Jim and I really started partnering. And we, you know, I said, Jim, you know, you got to go meet these guys. I, I can't figure out why I like them so much, but I'm having trouble kind of pulling a trigger here. And he went and met with them and then um, flew the next day to Boulder to meet me for meetings in Boulder. And he said, God, I really like them, but I can't figure out why or what we're supposed to do. Or, you know, we, so we both had the exact same kind of positive reaction, but also what should we do? And that was great because we ended up, Digging in it, digging in, finding out who was better at asking what questions, better questions, you know, finding out who was going to ask the better questions. And we started driving towards a deal and they had already accepted money from angels at a much higher price than we were willing to pay. 
So we ended up working out a unique transaction, and then it subsequently was funded by our friends at Alpha Edison, and they're doing fantastically. And that million-dollar revenue has you know, grown 25-plus times. And so we're, um, that's a good example of, of a cold situation. So uh, we enjoyed coming up with our random personal question list. Uh-oh. No, it's nothing to be worried about, but it, it was fun. How do, how do you describe your style? And I said I find you a little intimidating when first meeting you. Um, David said you're multi-layered. How do you describe yourself? Uh, good question. Um, I understand the, that maybe I'm intimidating, which is not what I'm trying to be, uh, of course. Um, I think that what I try to be is direct. And the directness, I don't know where that comes from, whether it's my dad or Bill Daniels or whatever. Um, but I consider myself to be a time management expert. That is my one of my superpowers. And that was driven by my career in investment banking, where I had 10 deals going on at any given time in eight different countries. You can't live if you don't have the ability to organize your thoughts and organize yourself. So I consider myself that my time is precious, that I'm trying to be as helpful as I can to you as quickly as possible. I have a need to be helpful, right? So I kind of take some conversations as like, what do you think we should do? Well, here's what you should do. <laughs> you just asked me, what, what do you think you should do? No, okay, okay, but that's direct. And I have the okay. same thing. David says I can't do small talk, so same thing. Except here's the difference between us. You come across as not only very direct and time management, but also very self-confident. So your directness has a, and I know what I'm talking about, which I don't have. <laughs> Thank, thankfully, I think that's the case. I mean, again, I am very soft, and uh, I'm one of those guys that cries at every movie, everything my kids do. Uh, I've cried publicly. Um, my kids tease me. My wife teases me because of the exact thing you're saying. It's like, well, you're so tough on the outside, but you're like, you're, you melt at the, the basic things in life. And so that comes from my mom, um, who's the sweetest person in the world who recently died. And I try to be um, a little more cognizant of what she was like in various different situations. I like plants. She was a, she had a huge green thumb. Her house was in house and gardens, the garden part, not the house. Um, even though we don't have any plants here, it's just kind of, I've always, was always into things like that. Um, um, she made me laugh all the time. She was fantastic. So I don't know why we're going down the path with my mom, but, um, I guess what I'm trying to do is, is be as helpful as possible in a short period of time. Cause I think everybody has a short period of time. And so it's not an attempt to be intimidating. It's an attempt to be direct and helpful. But do you still have professional doubts or do you still get nervous in your professional life? Oh yeah. Um, so, you know, we have, I've had a lot of great investments. I've had a lot of success. I was listening to Aton's, you know, 37 investments, yeah. and five unicorns, et cetera. Um, and, you know, sometimes when you peel the onion, as much as I made on the trade desk, and I think Jeff would say I was helpful at times because I had unique information and, and ideas on some things. I didn't make the trade desk, you know? And so a lot of us haven't. A lot of us have, a lot of us, and this goes up and down through the entire market, 
uh, there's a there's a certainly a uh, an amount of luck in all this process, and so I'm always questioning: Is this decision actually matter? I mean, is this going to be a lucky? Am I happy to be lucky at times than um, than actually making a decision that matters in these companies? And so the questioning the you know the what was the phrase you used the. Do you ever question yourself? Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, I mean, totally nervous about that process. And as we continue to raise more money, and we have a new partnership, and we have new people, and all those things are playing into, you know, um, the variables that can make you uh, successful or unsuccessful. And so, I think the 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 other thing I worry about is timing. Ten One Ten has a great portfolio out of their 2012 2013 investments. Double M One is the same thing. Timing was great then. We were investing in companies at $3 million, $5 million. It was early time, um, unique founders. And um, I can't tell if that's, you know, if we're going to wake up in 2025 and go, wow, you remember when we were investing in 2018, 19? And um, was that because we were such good investors or do we have great timing or a combination? Now, having said all that, I trust what we're doing. So I have to come back to that. Like, But actually, that was going to be one of my questions, which is sort of a... How do you think about your own success? And, you know, coming to L.A., you seem like you're in an extremely successful place where you are right now. And yet I always think it's fun to be sort of striving for the next thing. And so I don't know what you're striving for as your next thing or whether you measure success much more about the plants and the family. Or uh, I was very forceful or very open in saying that I want to win in V.C., so I want to put up our numbers. This is me at Double M. I want my numbers on a wall next to 10 110s, next to Muckers, next to Crosscuts. And you want to crush us? I want to win. Game and that on, is not Mark a Mullen. normal game on. That is yes. <laughs> and that is not a normal way VCs talk necessarily, as I was told. Well, come on, we're all collaborative. We're all going to do, you know, what's it matter? I'm like, fine, but like, are we all trying to get 3.7 times or am I trying to get 3.8 and you guys get 3.7? That's what I'm trying to get. And you can talk to Tyler, like, we don't lose deals very often. We do. It's really like, I'm still mad about a deal we've lost. It's a daily conversation we have. And we're trying to make sure we don't do that again. And those are some of the processes we're working on at Bonfire. So as we are getting ready to raise this next fund, which is uh, going very well. Um, we are having a lot of uh, internal, you know, conversations about who we want to be and what we want to be and when. We all have um, short-term and long-term um, objectives, but short-term and long-term things we have to accomplish. So, yeah, we're trying to raise this fund because we need to raise this fund to continue to push the the model and push the platform. Um, but okay what do we stand for and what do we look like in 10 years? And we're talking about that and we're work, trying to work backwards, which is a hard exercise to do because so many variables go into that. And why is that important? Because we feel like that enhances the reputation and enhances deal flow quality and enhances returns for our investors. So I have no issue competing with you for the rest of my career. Um, but uh, I, I would think that your success is also extremely dependent on L.A. just yes. continuing to thrive, and that will make it a much more interesting place to be for the rest of our lives. Yeah. 
Um, we've we've made the bet. Like we're all in. Yeah. Um, my wife was born and raised here. I had to create this. This is really where it came from. Like I moved here in 07. I was head of international. So I lived on an airplane still from L.A. And so I didn't have any relationship to Southern California. I didn't care uh, because I was so busy elsewhere. And our business wasn't here. Entertainment's here. I get that. We didn't do entertainment. So once we sold the firm and I woke up and we went through the 08, 09 crisis, that gave me a lot of time to stay home because there wasn't a lot of deals happening in the world. And I said, wow, you know, we've got to recreate, because I'm still young, recreate an opportunity here in LA and this is it. And so that's when I went in all, all in on Southern California. Lucked out. I didn't make Southern California a great market. Neither did Mark Suster or anybody else, but talking about it and pushing it and being supportive like Mark has been, for example, has been extremely positive for the market. So lucked out on that perspective. Great. So should we wrap, wrap this up and say, um, want to be cognizant of treating your time? Oh, shut up. <laughs> no, I mean it. For real. Dude, it's my time, too. It's a lot of people's time yes. here. Um, no, this was great. It, you it, sure? Yes. Yeah. Any more questions? Are we sure? No, lots more questions, but we'll ask them over beers. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Great. Wow, I just listened to that episode. Mark Mullen is such a lovely fellow and so tolerant of my questions. Really like that guy. Next up, Eva Ho of Peak Adventures should be a good one. We're recording these once a week and having a great time doing it. So please do share with a friend so that we have more listeners and can get more great guests excited to be on the show. 